You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode is audio from a plenary session at our 2019 conference in Chicago. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Good morning. It is such a delight to be with you. Um, and just, you know, as Kendall was talking, it was so kind, Kendall, and right back at you, girl. Um, but, you know, as she was talking, I was thinking about, and I've been reflecting this week about just the friendships that are formed here at Rooted. Um, I attended my first Rooted conference in 2014 in New York, and it was in the midst of a really difficult um, and kind of lonely season in ministry. I desperately was wanting to do youth ministry in a way that was faithful to scripture, um, that was that integrated young people into the life of the church more intentionally, and that regularly proclaimed the gospel of grace. But I wasn't sure at all that I knew how to do those things. I just was sensing this need. And at the same time, you know, it was in a context where um, sometimes it felt like we were just supposed to entertain kids and kind of keep them separate from the life of the church. So it was very confusing, and I felt incredibly isolated in ministry. I didn't really know a lot of people who were doing youth ministry at the time. And I think deep down there was this longing for friends who maybe understood my life and calling and maybe had even gone further, you know, had figured this out a little bit more than I felt I had at the time, um, who could show me how to do some of the things that I, I was longing to do. And um, I'm not sure I could have even named that at the time, but it was just this, as I look back, I think it was a deep longing in my life. And so I showed up at Rooted not knowing a soul other than Cameron. And he was a really new friend at the time and a really good one to have. Uh, but I really didn't, I didn't know anybody else who was going to be at that conference. And I showed up and just right away, to my surprise, at the opening reception, I felt as though I was among friends. There was just this warmth in the community. And what a gift that is to, to know others and to be known, um, and to be known by others who have a similar calling to proclaim this gospel of grace and who, as Kendall said, are clinging to it for dear life themselves. And so I just kind of felt swept up in that movement. It was really encouraging. And that's really been my prayer for you this weekend as I thought about our time together, uh, that whether it's your ninth rooted conference this year or your very first with us, that you will have experienced the deep sense that there are friends for the journey here, that you are not alone. One of my professors at Gordon-Conwell is known to say, don't do ministry alone. He says it's the first rule of ministry. And I love that, but sometimes when I've heard him say it, it sounds a lot easier said than done. You know, don't do ministry alone. Okay, but who am I supposed to do it with? Um, And so I hope as we prepare to part ways this afternoon that it will feel a lot more realistic for you not to do ministry alone, not to be in the trenches alone, but that you'll you'll have sensed that there are friends here um, that are on the journey with you. Sometimes I wonder, though, as we think about this, these feelings of loneliness we experience as youth ministers and as parents, if maybe God allows an extra measure of that in our lives um, to give us a deeper empathy for our teenagers. Because as we know, many of them feel lonely a lot of the time at school, in their friendships, um, and even sometimes, as, the, as much as we'd hate to think this, in our homes and churches where we work so hard to foster warm relationships, they may be feeling alone. Um, in, in Bo Burnham's 2018 film, um, I'm guessing many of you have seen it, uh, Eighth Grade, he thoughtfully portrays this loneliness that so many teenagers experience navigating the halls of their high school and the difficulties of social media. 
And he shows how in our performance-driven culture, kids are drawn to, to create an image. You know, we see this in all kinds of places in our culture, our celebrity, our fascination with celebrities, and our sort of image-driven like PR moves. Um, but he shows how kids are drawn to create an image. And he follows um, fictional eighth grader Kayla Day through her last week of middle school. Fun fact, Bo Burnham actually grew up in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, the town where I live and serve. And so the name of the school in the film, Miles River Middle School, is actually a nod to our local school by the same name, where my sixth through eighth graders spend their days. So as I watched this, I, you know, it was just almost too close to home because here they are at Miles River Middle School where my kids, um, many of our students, spend their days. Um, but throughout this poignant funny, sometimes devastating film, we see two sides to Kayla. In her bedroom at home, she flips open her laptop screen and um, looks at the camera and flashes a smile on her YouTube channel. She excitedly offers tips on topics such as how to be confident, how to make friends, and um, taking risks, these different topics that she covers. But at school, we see a different side. She's routinely anxious and alone. She looks wistfully at the popular kids in her class and imagines what it would be like to have them as friends. And we see her in her bedroom make a list with two columns. On the one side, things I want, more confidence, more friends, a best friend, a boyfriend, and in parentheses, Aiden. And on the other side, how to get them, how to get these things I want. Don't slouch, smile more, speak louder, make small talk, be nice, leave comments on people's Instagram, get more friends first, pick a favorite one, be there for them no matter what. And pertaining to the boyfriend, be sexy, new haircut. In one particularly striking scene, Kayla arrives at the most popular girl's house for a pool party. She had been awkwardly invited by the girl's mom. And as the screen shows Kayla making her shy entrance, basically unnoticed by all of the other kids at the party, Kayla's voice narrates a video for her YouTube channel about putting yourself out there. Instead of telling her own story of being brave to go to this party and try to make some new friends, she actually styles herself as the host saying, my dad made me invite this one weird girl or whatever, and I didn't really want to invite her because at school she was always weird and I didn't like her, but my dad made me invite her, and I got to know the real her, and she was awesome. She rewrites her story according to a script that makes her feel included because, as we've said, she's lonely. In this and other ways, we see that Kayla is creating an image for herself. She is, as Andy Crouch has said, about all of our image making, trying to decrease vulnerability and increase power. As youth workers and parents, we are all too aware that our middle and high school students live in this world where they must constantly update their image. They typically have multiple Instagram accounts, sharing one of them with just a close circle of friends to relieve some of the pressure of curating everything that they post on the other account for the masses. They will often go to a party just long enough to take a photo so that people will know they were invited and that they were there. 
And we've seen how Snapchat makes them slaves to posting every day by documenting their streaks of sending images to one another. We've probably all known students who have sent or received nude, nude photos or have been caught by sexting, caught sexting rather. Um, you know, the, somebody's found out like they're having this inappropriate relationship online. And these are ways that our students work to make themselves more powerful, more popular, to decrease the vulnerability and the insecurity that they feel as they walk the halls of their middle and high schools, as they navigate all the different media online. Even the college resume is a form of this posturing, as students collect activities and accolades to make themselves attractive to the top schools. The pressure for our students to create a polished, perfect image is intense. And friends, we are image makers too. We wanna to be impressive in ministry and in parenting, a fact that thankfully we confess with blessed regularity at Rooted. I'm so thankful for that. Often when we gather to pray for the session, somebody will say, God, free us of our need to be impressive. And I just think I need that prayer in my life every day, don't you? Ironically, as Cameron pointed out in, in the first chapter of Gospel-Centered Youth Ministry, youth ministry is actually the wrong field to be in if you want, to, if you want people to be impressed with your career. Right? Have you ever experienced that? People look at you like, oh, wow, you know, and often, at least where I live in New England, they're like, what does that even mean that you're, you know, that you work with students, that you're a youth pastor? But we still try to be impressive, don't we? We feel immense pressure to be liked by the parents in our ministries, by youth leaders, by coworkers, even by our students themselves. I mean, this is wild, right? That all these years after we've graduated from middle and high school, we're still trying to get middle schoolers and high schoolers to like us. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Um, and if we're honest, it's not, you know, sometimes we agonize over our messages, not so much because we want kids to behold Jesus, which is a good reason to agonize a little over our words and to wrestle with God over them, um, but, but so that they'll be impressed with our speaking skills or our illustrations. The temptation to brag to other youth workers about how many kids are in our ministries is real. And parents, I know that the pull to find your identity and how well your kids are doing is so real as well. Still, as we curate our images in all of these regards, we often feel like imposters, don't we? Like Kayla, the image we create doesn't really line up with who we are. We cover up our human frailties, our insecurities, and our sinful pride on a daily basis. Well, this word image takes us all the way back to the beginning. <clears throat> and in the ancient Near Eastern world, the context of the Old Testament image excuse me, in the, old, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the context for the Old Testament <clears throat> image was literally an idol that represented a deity, a false god. And so idolatry is exactly what we're up to when we try to project an image in the world. It's a false god that gives us a sense of power or significance. And like any idol, as we get sucked in to image making, it demands more and more of us. We need more and more to feel that same jolt of satisfaction. This is why kids and adults have trouble pulling ourselves away from our screens, right? Like I use my phone more now than I did a few years ago because we get sucked into this image making and this constant affirmation that we are seen, that we are noticed and influential. In our tech-driven world, much of the day is given to creating 
and maintaining an image for ourselves. Well, as we've already said, the same stuff that's in our students is in you and me too. And so we can't hold out the cure for them unless we know it deeply ourselves. So let's begin by looking at this word image in its original biblical context in Genesis 1, 24 through 31. I'm going to read it for you if you want to just turn there with me. That would be great. So Genesis 1, beginning in verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So, so much that we could unpack from these verses, but before we turn to our, just kind of our narrow focus in this broad passage, let me pray for us. God, we give you thanks for your word, and we ask that you would illumine our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would make us more and more like your beloved son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So our objective this morning in these Many of you know, it's a kind of a chunk of scripture, these verses. Um, it's just going to be a little narrow. We're not going to try to look at the whole thing, but we're just going to ask what does it mean to be in God's image and his likeness? And what does God's word have to say to this ever present temptation that we feel, that our students feel, uh, to make images for ourselves? So Genesis provides the theological framework for all of scripture, as we know, beginning with Genesis 1 through 3, which are particularly weighty in regard to the human story. And we've already heard from Elise this weekend on Genesis 3. So much of what Christians teach and preach um, comes, finds its theological origins in these chapters and in the story of beginnings, the doctrine of God, the nature of human gender and sexuality, as we've heard about this weekend, the theology of work and of stewardship, the grounds for social justice, and the problem of evil all find their genesis here. And Genesis 1, 24 through 31 specifically has much to contribute to the, the overarching meta-narrative of scripture, as well to our understanding of mankind's nature and relationship to God. 
And when we talk about mankind, it's important to note that in the Hebrew, this word that we have for man can be translated in some different ways. And it depends a lot on context. It also depends on whether there's the definite article there. Um, So, you know, the ESV that I read from translates it all as man, and then they have a little note in there that says the different usages. So I'm going to use mankind, human beings. Those are both great ways to translate this word in some instances, not in every instance. Sometimes it really is a man. Um, And other times, if you have the article, it's going to be Adam. So they're all interrelated. Um, But just know, as I use those words, mankind and human being, that's faithful to the Hebrew as we think about these different uses for the same word, depending on context. Um, So Genesis 1 reveals at least three things about being made in God's image, what being made in God's image means for human beings, for mankind. First, we see that human beings are made to rule. Mankind, as we read the story of Genesis 1, is a new class of creature, unlike all others that God has made so far. After repeating the phrase, according to their kinds, 10 times in reference to the the origins of vegetation and animals, the ancient, ancient people reading Moses' words here would have readily taken note of this shift in pattern to mankind's being created, not according to their kinds, Um, but in God's own image. And they are contrasted with the animal kingdom in this way, in the preceding verses, specifically in verses 24 through 25, in that they will represent God's interests among all else that he has made. So they're totally set apart from the rest of the created world, and they are made to rule. The psalmist reiterates this point when he writes, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the seas, all that swim the paths of the seas. That's in Psalm 8. And, um, you know, you hear the repeated language there, right? So he's clearly drawing on this tradition of of Genesis 1 and the royal rule over creation that comes from being made in God's image. Second, we see that human beings are made male and female, and they are in God's image as male and female. What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful thing to speak over our students in an age where we're so confused about what it means to be male or female, where we're so confused about um, what it means for um, women to feel that they're empowered. Um, And here we see that God has said he has made them male and female. This is a part of what it means to be in the image of God. Um, It's not just for one sex. It's for both together in a complementary way. Um, So, several verses before Adam and Eve are named specifically in Genesis 2, mankind is said to be male and female. The content of this third clause is linked directly to the concept of being made in God's image. You can't separate them. And the pronouns shift accordingly. Did you notice that? It's him and then it's them. Um, So, talking him, talking about the corporate mankind, and then them speaking to this corporate mankind will be both male and female, and they together will bear God's image. Men and women together then share in the work that God has given them, um, and they represent God's interests in the world. There is no sense here of a second-class humanity. Rather, women bear an equal measure of the likeness to their creator, and they share in this together. So this guards us, I think, on both sides of the, of, the, of the controversy going on in our world today, right? Because we can't say that either sex has more of God's image than the other, right? We're, we're called to hold them together. 
And likewise, the creation blessing and mandate are given to them corporately. So human beings are made male and female. Third, human beings are made to fill the earth, and this is part of what they have to do together, right? Just as both male and female are needed to express the full image of God, so male and female are both necessary to fulfill this mandate, um, in particular, the injunctions to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They can't do it independently. Um, And together, these three imperatives speak to the mission of procreation. Animals, too, we notice in reading the preceding verses, are commanded to be fruitful and multiply, but they will do this according to their kinds. Human beings, on the other hand, will reproduce in the image and likeness of God himself. How beautiful. And the progeny of Adam and Eve were intended to rule over creation as they did this, yet all sons and daughters have followed in the footsteps of their sinful, their sinful parents instead, so we'll see how that works out later. But Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein writes that the man and woman were to fill the earth with their royal kind, and they were to bring the earth under their rule to produce a royal human race, a universal ruling community. In other words, they had all that they needed. God had given them all that they needed in his image to fill the entire earth with the presence and glory of himself. In her book, The Image of God in the Garden of Eden, Catherine McDowell contrasts the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives with the ancient washing of the mouth rituals from Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's fascinating. Her research really demonstrates how Genesis subverts the common narrative of idolatry of that day. Um, So in contrast to the idols of the ancient Near Eastern culture, which are meant to represent gods but are not alive, these images are living beings representing God's own likeness and his interest in the world and ruling over all that he has made. Some of you are probably familiar with um, Kevin DeYoung's lovely children's book, uh, The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Leads Us Back to the Garden. If you don't have it, get it, because you can use it to teach students. Um, You know, not they have to do story time, but sometimes I'll show the images, they're really beautiful, or just, you know, share the story the way that he um, so beautifully writes it. Um, But he explains that being in, in God's image means that Adam and Eve were little mirrors reflecting his glory. Um, This is what it means, that they are to rule and to fill the earth um, in his image. So although the Imago Dei is pivotal to understanding the human story, the term is used only three places in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, where we see it three times. In Genesis 5, 1 through 3, which uses likeness instead of image. And in Genesis 9, 6. And the repetition of this phrase three times in Genesis 26 through 27, those verses that we read, serves to highlight the phrase, even though um, the Old Testament ceases to use it after Genesis 9. So it's highlighting, this repetition is highlighting that these are important verses. We need to take note of what they're saying. In Hebrew narrative, repetition is like this. It really carries the story forward. So when we notice repeated words and phrases, they're like neon signs, we're meant to stop and think, why, why is that repeated? It's, it's intentional. Um, they're telling us to pay attention. And so the threefold repetition of image in Genesis 1 and the threefold use of the image of God or the likeness of God in those first few chapters of Genesis signify the importance of this concept, even though it's, it's not used again in that way um, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The words are there, but not specifically image of God. 
Um, so there's some mystery here. Scholars have debated this question. What does it really mean to be in the image? Is it intellectual capacity? Is it um, only bodily? Well, no, it has to do primarily with souls, but we're embodied souls, as, as we see in Genesis 2, when God breathes life into um, Adam and Eve. And the image of God is, as we will see, is primarily, because it's about our souls, it's primarily embedded in language of kinship or family. Um, in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, we read that when God created mankind, he made them in the image and likeness, or in the likeness of God, rather, excuse me. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So we're seeing here that the image is being used to convey the sonship of Adam to God the Father and the sonship of Seth to his earthly father, Adam. Isn't that beautiful that it's used in both ways? And so it shows, it kind of gives us a clue that God is using this to say, these are my kids that I've fashioned. They belong to me. We see a close corollary to this in the way that children imitate their parents. For example, we might think of Macaulay Culkin um, in Home Alone. Here we are in Chicago. So this is a Chicago movie, right? Um, and you know, he uses his dad's aftershave in that iconic kind of um, scene day after day, even though it stings like crazy. Um, or we might picture a young girl traipsing around the house in her mother's clothes and shoes. Um, just as young children mimic their parents, human beings were meant to imitate God the Father. And that's what Genesis 5 is showing us. When we look at the biblical story, however, attention is quickly established in regard to this image and likeness. Um, in Genesis 3, Eve believes the lie of the serpent that she can be like God. Essentially, she's setting out to create an image for herself, a new identity as we heard about from Amir today. Not the identity of God that he's placed on her life, but an identity that she creates or finds herself. Um, and Adam quickly follows her lead. Although he had heard the very words of God and thus was implicitly charged with conveying them to his wife, um, he follows after and creates an image for himself. And this theme is repeated throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? In all of the idolatry that we see. In Exodus 24, Early on in the story of Israel, God commands his people, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the heaven. These words, image and likeness, are not the same Hebrew words um, as used in Genesis 1, but the command clearly mimics the structure um, of Genesis 1.26. Mankind is in the image and likeness of God and is made to worship him alone, not to create deaf and dumb idols um, or to bow down and serve created things. And when the people of Israel heard this word from Moses, uh, we read that they answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But no sooner had Moses gone up the mountain and come down again than they, he found them making a golden calf, carving an image and sadly, the story of Israel is wrought with the continual image-making idolatry of God's people. This human effort to be in control of our own lives and destinies is what leads us into idolatry. God had created Adam and Eve to be dependent on him, his image bearers, but they were easily led to believe that they could become somehow more like God, forgetting that they already bore his image. So they took matters into their own hands, they created an image for themselves that made them feel powerful and in control. But the idol they made was deaf and dumb, 
with no breath in it, and it led them into death. And so we, lead, we read the chilling refrain throughout Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. But there's a glimmer of hope. We see um, these words, the image of God, once more in the, in the Old Testament in Genesis 9 through 6, or excuse me, 9 verse 6. Um, and you can read that whole passage. It, it, it repeats a lot of the, um, the same language that we just read in Genesis 1 as God renews the, the creation mandate. But what I want you to notice is that in verse 6, it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So notice how this language picks up on Genesis 1, 24 through 31. Noah and his family received this new creation mandate as part of God's covenant renewal with their family. They are reminded that like Adam and Eve, they are to exercise caring dominion over God's creation. They are to bear fruit and fill the earth. And they are to represent God's own interests, having been stamped with his image upon their lives. Notably, these, these occurrences of image and likeness happen after the fall in Genesis 3, in which Adam's role in all of his relationships have already been damaged by sin. So the appearance of the Imago Dei again as a rebuke against murder um, shows that although the image has been distorted in mankind, it still marks human beings with God's seal of creation and ownership. It endows them with great value. So human beings are still in God's image. And if it weren't for this verse, we might lose heart. But we bear the image. We are very good, but cursed, still reflecting God, even though imperfectly. And this fits squarely with the way we see God care for Adam and Eve um, in their relationships in Genesis 3. He clothes them. He gives them a place to be. Um, and it hints at the, the way he will one day bring them back into his family. He makes a promise that a fellow image bearer, a son of Eve, will settle the score with Satan at the end of days. So a better image is needed to restore the image that God intended in the garden. A better image is needed to put things right. And when Jesus came, he perfectly obeyed the Father. Rather than trying to escape vulnerability by um, receiving the enemy's lies, he was willingly led into death for us. And Paul writes in Colossians, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God bore our curse went to the cross and brought us back to God. And he is alive. Unlike the images we make for ourselves, which the prophets and the Psalms repeatedly tell us have no breath in them, no life in them, God breathes his own breath into human beings in the garden. And now Jesus, the perfect image, is animated with life. In this way, the Genesis account of creation totally subverts the narratives of the surrounding culture. The one true God is alive, and so are his image bearers. In his death, in his life, death, and resurrection, um, Jesus secured our inheritance as sons, both men and women, given the full rights of sonship as the ancient world understood them. We will rule over 
we will rule with him over all that belongs to the Father, and he makes us fruitful in a whole new way through the gospel that is bearing fruit and increasing in the world as it does among us. Colossians 1, 5 through 6. So as we think about this passage in light of the gospel of grace um, that we trust has been bearing fruit among you these past few days and, and will continue to as you go back to your context, I want to just quickly share with you three things that are really good news for our students and for us. First, God has made our students in his own image and in his likeness. This is good news even for our middle and high schoolers who are not yet walking with Jesus. The image of God is resident within every human being, even after the fall. Um, And whereas, you know, the other creatures in the garden were created according to their kinds, men and women, as we've said, and teenagers are created in mysterious kinship with God himself. So we can't, you know, put the stamp of approval on our, on our um, culture's obsession with tolerance, right? Um, and this is, you know, one thing that maybe um, we would be tempted to use that way. We can't put our stamp of approval on that. Um, but it is a gospel truth that our students are likely to cheer, even if they haven't met Jesus yet. Um, we should be careful not to suggest that they're okay without God, um, but instead by telling them that they are in God's image, we explain that they are made to have relationship with God made to be part of his family. Contrary to our culture's current narrative that we must create an image or identity for ourselves, the gospel tells us that we already have an image. The image of God gives each one dignity and value. And what a hopeful thing to share with our teenagers, even as we long for them to be found in Christ. So I hope that you'll go back and tell that to your students who even the ones who haven't begun to walk with him yet. Second, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the true image. He didn't strive after likeness with God, as Philippians 2 makes plain, because he already had it as the beloved son. Instead, he emptied himself, he took on our flesh, and he came to redeem the sin-torn world. He is the needed image, the perfect image of God that we have all failed to be. He perfectly obeys the commands of our Father, so our students no longer need to perform. He has a dominion that outweighs Adam's. Our students don't have to seek to conquer others or put them down in order to feel secure. And he fills the earth so that every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship him. Our students don't have to produce impressive results or content even as they walk with Jesus. They can be secure in what he's already done. A few years ago, I sat down with a student um, to talk about kind of next steps in his faith in Christ, and um, this particular student was growing in Christ, and I I challenged him to consider some things that he could do to continue growing. And as we sat and talked in my office, um, he seemed a little hesitant. There was just something kind of weighing him down. So I asked, you know, what was going on, asked him to just share that with me. And... um, you know, he shared that he still saw so much sin in his life, that there were things that, although he was walking with Christ and, you know, um, serious about his relationship with Jesus, there was just sin that he didn't feel like he was conquering. And it, it was making him feel, he shared, a little insecure, even though he was outspoken about his faith at, at school and at our church. Um, and as he talked, there was this heaviness that I sensed um, over this usually energetic and positive young guy. And so what a privilege it was to tell him, you died. And your life is hidden in Christ. 
When God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus, the image of the invisible God who lived and died and rose again for you. And you know something, even as I spoke those words, his countenance changed. It was as if a heavy burden was lifted um, that moment and his grin returned to his face. Um, Do you remember the first time that you heard that story? I mean, really heard it, really understood that Jesus died for you. I was a junior in high school who already loved Jesus, but I had been trying so hard to get to him on my own terms, trying to be the image of a perfect daughter, a perfect Christian, a perfect youth group kid and friend, hoping that God would love me more and that I'd somehow feel okay. And God entered into that mess with me and began to reveal to me what Jesus had already done. And life has never been the same. So friends, there's nothing more comforting than we can share um, with our Christian students than to tell them that when God looks at their lives, he sees the perfect life of Jesus, the image that they have failed to be again and again and again in their place. The image that was broken in the garden is now replaced with the image of the beloved son. And this elder brother perfectly restores our kinship with his father. Third, and finally, the Holy Spirit is transforming us with ever-increasing glory into the very image of Jesus. It's not only that Jesus stands in our place, but the Holy Spirit is actually, even now, making us like him. And we become what we worship. The psalmist warns against idols of silver and gold made by human hands, saying, they have mouths but cannot speak, they have eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths and those who make them will become like them. But fortunately for us and for our students, it works in Christ too. As we worship him, we become like him. And so for our students who are in Christ, this is the best news. Jesus has already dealt with their sin and shame. They no longer have to prove themselves. Any identity they may try to create on Instagram or YouTube or in the halls of their high schools pales in comparison to the renewed image that Jesus is giving them. Not only do we receive Jesus' image in our place, we also have the same spirit who raised him from the dead living within us so that we can actually become like him. The Apostle John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. A day is coming when we will no longer feel the need to be image makers because we will see the perfect image, Jesus, face to face. And on that day, the narcissistic demands of our idols will cease forever and we will be the restored image that God intended at creation. Friends, what Jesus did for us, he has accomplished from life to death and from death to life. And we who are in his image are being transformed from death to life as we die and rise with him on a daily basis. So my friends, I pray that you would be fruitful and multiply as you bear the fruit of the gospel of grace. And I pray that you would remember that you are made, redeemed, and being transformed in the very image of God from death to life. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we thank you so much for this message of grace woven throughout the scripture, that you, creator God, have made us to be like you, not to make images for ourselves or to manufacture an image. 
um, but to join you um, through, the, through the shed blood of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we worship you, God. Help us to become like him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.